have the privilege and blessing to uh, bring the word of God to us this morning. Uh, Pastor Milton is on vacation. He'll be on vacation for the next uh, three weeks, or at least two now remaining. So he's, he and his family are enjoying a well-deserved, hard-earned vacation. And uh, uh, if you would, would you turn to Matthew chapter 6? Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. That's where we're going to be this morning. Actually, for the next two weeks, we're going to be in Matthew, looking at the Sermon on the Mount and just a, a small section of that. And as you're turning to Matthew 6 to 19, let me pray for us in our time together. Father in heaven, I just thank you for this time and uh, just the time to gather in your presence to worship you, to give you thanks for who you are, Lord. You are awesome. You are the King of heaven. And Lord, we long for your kingdom to come. Uh, Lord, give us that vision of your kingdom. As we look at this passage this morning, help us to long to be people who are living for your kingdom, Lord. Bless us as we just immerse ourselves into your word, Lord. My prayer for all of us is that we would um, just take to heart the things that we hear this morning. Your word is powerful, Lord. I pray that it would have its way with our lives, that it would bring about transformation in all of our hearts. And uh, so just bless this time. Bless me as I bring the message and bless us as we enjoy Continue to worship you as we dive into this passage this morning. Bless us in our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 2006, uh, my family and I, it was my, my family along with my parents, we went on a trip to Chicago and uh, spent a few days in Chicago. We had, I had never been there before. Um, and then we took a road trip from, uh, through Illinois up through Wisconsin and into uh, Minnesota to visit some longtime friends. And they recommended that on our way, as we passed through Wisconsin, that we stop at this place called The House on the Rock. I don't know if anybody, has anybody ever heard of The House on the Rock? All right. I don't think anybody has. Uh, well, if you go to The House on the Rock website, this is what you're going to find out about The House on the Rock. For over 60 years, The House on the Rock has been a majestic work in progress. It began in 1945 when a man named Alex Jordan had a towering goal to build a man-made retreat as awe-inspiring as the view from the rock upon which the house would eventually be built. From that spark of imagination, the house on the rock has evolved into include displays and collections of the exotic, the unusual, and the amazing that can be viewed as three separate tours. Well, my father, wanting to give us the full experience, paid for all of us to take the three tours. And we spent four hours going through the House on the Rock. And at first it was kind of interesting. Um, several rooms in the original house, including this, the Infinity Room, where it's, it's, it goes out for about 200 feet and hangs several hundred feet above the, uh, the forest floor. So you go into this room and you see other things as you go through the house. It's kind of an interesting uh, architecture. But as you keep going, things just start turning really, really weird. Um, you just start to see that Alex Jordan just collected thing after thing and we just went through hallway after hallway room after room building after building looking at junk just stuff everywhere from musical instruments that played on their own to just you know wares and different things to knickknacks to just all these different collections and rooms with contraptions that he collected or built or um he had a dollhouse, a huge, humongous a room filled with this dollhouse collection. He has the world's largest indoor carousel. And this went on and on and on. Um, and it was kind of like going through like Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory and, and meets a haunted house. It was just really, really bad. 
And um, the sad thing was this, that in four hours we toured through what this man had spent more than four decades committing his life to, his energy to, his passion to, his money. Everything he had given himself to this project, this was his life. And I just couldn't help but feeling nauseous and sad for this man. But see, what the house on the rock is a picture of is, it's a picture of how all of us, all of us, every single one of us, seeks to build his own kingdom. You see, all of us treasure things. We all are seeking to amass something, build something, invest ourselves into something. And this has been going on since the fall. You see, in the garden, when Satan came to Adam and Eve, what he did is he presented them with this lie, that you can be the king of your own kingdom. That you no longer have to be a part of God's kingdom. And Paul Tripp says, ever since that fateful day, human life and history has been shaped by kingdoms in conflict. The little kingdom wars with the big kingdom. The kingdom of this world wars with the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of man wars with the kingdom of God. This war goes on behind every human intention, decision, thought, word, desire, and deed. Everything everyone ever does is done in pursuit of the success of one of these kingdoms. This war is unceasing and inescapable because it is fought on the turf of each of our hearts. Created for big kingdom living, sin twists our allegiance and causes us to be all too dedicated to the little kingdoms of our own making. We get blinded to the transcendent glories of the big kingdom and actually believe that the little shadow glories of our own little kingdom are as good as it gets. I love what Paul Tripp concludes with. He says this. He says, you see, we are all kingdom builders. The question is, whose kingdom are we building? And that's the question for us this morning. Which kingdom are you living for? Are you living for your own kingdom? For your own treasures? For your own empire? Or are you living for God's glorious and eternal kingdom? You see, the Bible is all about the kingdom of God. From beginning to end. It has always existed. It will always exist. And it's no different when we come to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew is the gospel that presents Jesus as the king of that kingdom. In fact, the word kingdom appears 55 times in the book of Matthew. And the gospel begins with the coming of the king. John the Baptist is sent to prepare the way of the Lord because, guess what? The king is coming to this earth. And the first recorded words out of Jesus' mouth in his public ministry were, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What Jesus is saying is, My kingdom is coming. Repent from your own kingdom and get out of it. Put it to death and join mine. That's what Jesus' message is. And in in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the greatest sermons that the Lord preached, it's all about the kingdom, His kingdom. It begins with the qualities of a kingdom citizen broken or poor in spirit, mourning, meek, hungering after thir- uh, and thirsting after righteousness, merciful, poor in, er, pure in heart, peacemaker, and persecuted. He moves on to talk about the influence of this kingdom citizen who belongs to the kingdom of God. Talking about he'll be salt and light into a world that is dark and does not know the king. He talks about the righteousness of a kingdom citizen, how he's to live and what he'll look like, and his personal religion. And even moves on to describe the, for the passionate prayer of someone who's living for, the, for God's kingdom. 
where he's crying out and saying, Lord, I want your name to be hallowed, your kingdom to come, your will to be done on this earth like it is being done in heaven. That's what I long for. And in fact, give me everything I need so I can be let loose for kingdom work. And here where we come, where we find ourselves in verse 19, Jesus is getting at the heart of the kingdom matter. And he's saying, where is your allegiance? Whose kingdom are you living for? You can only live for one kingdom. And which one is it going to be? Jesus is telling us that if we're going to be his disciples, we need our heart needs to be fully invested in his kingdom. And so this morning, I ask you again, which kingdom are you living for? And what Jesus is going to do in these three sections, these three sayings in verses 19 to 24, where we're going to be this morning, is he's giving us three characteristics of someone who is living for God's kingdom. Three characteristics of someone who is living for God's kingdom. If you want to know what it looks like to be one who's living for God's kingdom, look here in verses 19 to 24. This is what Jesus is going to do. He's going to contrast the one who is not living for God's kingdom with the one who is. And he's going to continue this just amazing contrast throughout each section, each of these three sections. Let's begin with characteristic number one. And it's found in verses 19 to 21. The first characteristic of someone who is living for God's kingdom and not for his own kingdom is that this one is investing the treasures of this life into God's kingdom because that is where his heart is. He's investing the treasures of this life in God's kingdom because that is where his heart is. Notice the text. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus begins the teaching with an imperative, with a prohibition. He says, do not lay up yourselves treasures in heaven. And understand what he's saying. With, by using a present active imperative in the Greek, he's saying, not just do not lay up. He's saying, stop laying up. Stop doing it. See, Jesus knows who he's speaking to. He knows that it is our natural tendency. It is our default position to be investing in our own kingdoms, to be busy about accumulating treasures and wealth and other things so that we can invest them into building our own systems, our own empires, our own worlds where we, we exist at the center. And Jesus is saying, I want, if you're going to be my disciple, you need to stop doing that in order to begin to and be continually investing in my kingdom. Notice the, the words he used. He literally says, stop laying, stop treasuring up treasures. It's the same Greek word, both the verb and the noun. Stop treasuring up treasures. And a definition, a simple definition of a treasure is anything of value. Anything that you or I ascribe value to, that is a treasure. Now understand this, that this, yes, this passage speaks to money and possessions and no doubt is very significant for us who live in probably the most materialistic age of all. But it goes way beyond just money and possessions. Jesus is talking about our time. He's talking about our health, our bodies. He's talking about our, our talents, our gifts, our resources, our jobs, our education, anything that we would we would put value on or ascribe value to. Jesus says, stop storing up these things. Stop treasuring these things up for your own kingdom purposes. 
You see, we all have treasures. They just differ from each person, from one person to another. And here's a good way to, to figure out what am I treasuring? What is my treasure? Here's, here's the four questions that might help to answer that for each one of us. Number one, what do you value most? When you think about all that you have, all that you do, your time, whatever, what is it that you value most? Number two, what would you hate to lose? If you lost it, you would be devastated. That's the second question to ask. The third question, what do your thoughts turn to most frequently when you are free to think of what you will? When you get home from work, when you have time off, when, when your mind just can think for a second, where does it go? What are you thinking about? What's, got, what's captivating your thoughts? And fourthly, what affords you the greatest pleasure? What affords you the greatest pleasure? Where do you find your contentment in? What does it rest in? You see, when we begin to ask these questions, we realize we have a lot of things that we're treasuring. Now, I want, I want us to be clear about what Jesus is not saying so we can really get at what Jesus is saying to us this morning. Here's what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not banning or prohibiting possessions, personal wealth, or, or, or property. He's not saying you can't be rich, you can't have money. That's not what he's saying. In fact, if we look at the Bible, many of the men who walk with God most faithfully were rich. When you think of Abraham, when you think of Job, when you think of David, all of these men had wealth, they had possessions, they had things, but that, they, they were still able to be men who loved the Lord and kept him number one. So Jesus is not saying you cannot be rich, you cannot have wealth. Secondly, Jesus is not forbidding Christians from saving for the future emergencies. When he's talking about us storing up treasure on this earth, that, he is not saying you cannot have an emergency fund. So if you have several thousand dollars in the bank for a rainy day, that's good. The Bible talks about the need to take times of plenty and use those as times to prepare for uh, times where there may be need and want, especially for those of us who have responsibilities and people to care for. So Jesus is not forbidding that. And Jesus is not calling us to hate material things. He's not calling us to be, you know, to go live in a van down by the river or to be living in the desert as, as ascetic monks. And, and abandon all material possessions. He's saying, actually, enjoy the things that I give you. First Timothy 6 talks about that. He wants us to be enjoying these blessings as a foretaste of what we're going to experience and even just for, uh, to, to know that, that it's the grace of God and just to know how good he is. He's saying we can enjoy things and still not be guilty of what he's talking about. So what is Jesus really saying when he's talking about do not or stop laying up treasure on earth? What Jesus is, is saying is, is found in the contrast that he makes between earth and heaven. Notice, it's not just about a difference in location. It's not just about there, here versus there. It's not even a, a distinction or a contrast between time where we're storing up now versus storing up later. Jesus is ultimately saying, here is what I'm contrasting It's your kingdom versus God's kingdom. It's my kingdom versus God's kingdom. And Jesus is saying, what I want you to stop doing is I want you to stop building and investing in your own kingdom because I want you to come into mine and experience mine. You see, Jesus knows that we build kingdoms, we amass treasure, we we hoard possessions, we do all of these things because in them we find security, We find our personal worth. We experience tremendous power. We enjoy independence. And we get to taste of pleasure. Jesus points us to the reality of our earthly treasures in our earthly kingdom. Look what he says. He says, if you do this, if you do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, 
where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. See, there was three primary places in the ancient world where you could put your, your, your treasure, your money, your stuff. It was, it was mainly in your clothes or in your food, both grain and livestock, or you could bury it in the ground, in your house or in a field. And Jesus goes after each one of those and he attacks them and he shows how our earthly treasures, our kingdoms, are nothing. And they're, they're dangerous places to invest. Look what he says. He says, where moth destroys. Moths eat clothing, especially clothing of the ancient time, which was wool. And if you want to store your wealth in grains, like the man in Luke 12 who says, I've built barns and they're full of grain, I'll build even bigger barns to hold more grain. Jesus says, that's where there is eating or decay. Our, our, a lot of our translations say rust destroys. But really, the literal word for brosis in the Greek is eating away. It's speaking of decay, like that of a worm or anything else that destroys or eats at. And so all that grain and barns, all that livestock, Jesus is saying, it's all decaying. It's all going to disappear. And for those of us who, in the ancient world who might have buried our treasure in our house, filled things of, of, of value in a box and buried it, Jesus says, it's there that thieves literally, literally in the Greek, dig through. Meaning the mud brick home, they dig through and they ultimately dig through into the ground to get your treasure out. You see, what Jesus is saying is, the kingdoms, the treasures that we're amassing, the kingdoms that we're building are insecure, they're deteriorating, they're uncertain, they're vulnerable, and they're temporary. Either they go away when we die or when God comes to renew this earth, they will be done away with. But either way, whatever you're building here, whatever you're investing all of your time and energy into, that's not for the Lord, but for yourself, it's all going away. I love what Paul Tripp says in his book, A Quest for More. He says, we simply were not constructed to live only for ourselves. We were placed on earth to be part of something bigger than the narrow borders of our survival and of our own little definition of happiness. We were created to be a part of something so big, so glorious, so far beyond the ordinary that it would totally change the way we approach every ordinary thing in our lives. You see, Jesus gets at the heart of the issue in verse 21. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What Jesus is not saying is he's not saying, look, just start investing in my kingdom and eventually your heart will get there. It'll catch up. No, Jesus is, is, is declaring a timeless truth. He's saying, wherever your treasure is, that is where your heart is. To put it the other way, wherever your heart is, that is where you will invest. And you see, what Jesus longs for is for our hearts. Jesus wants our hearts. He wants us, listen to this, He wants us to find our greatest treasure in Him. He wants to be our greatest treasure. Jesus wants us to be like the man in the parable of Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is, is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy... He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. See, not only is the kingdom of heaven where we want to treasure up our treasures, but it is the treasure because God is there and Christ is the ultimate treasure. We need to become like Paul where we can say, but whatever gain I had, whatever treasures I had, whatever kingdom I was building and investing into, 
I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all of my things, all of my treasure, all of my kingdom. And count it as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. You see, Paul understood that he was the richest man in the universe because Christ was his. Because he had the ultimate treasure. And if he looked at everything else around him, he realized this is nothing. I already am the richest man. I already have the richest treasure, the greatest treasure. You see, you will never, ever, ever invest in God's kingdom. You will never store up treasure in heaven unless that is where your heart is. And your heart won't be there unless you see Christ, God himself, as the greatest treasure. If, and it's when we, we take our hearts and we put it and locate it in heaven because that's where Christ is. That's where God is. That, that, that we begin to do what Jesus is calling us to do. And this is what he's calling us to do. He says, continually be laying up for yourself treasures in heaven. You see, this is the, the mind-blowing thing. Not only has God saved us and says, I want you to become a part of my kingdom. I want you to enjoy all of my glory forever and, and, and know me and be part of something that is so big that I'm doing. This kingdom, it will never end. And that's what I'm all about. My kingdom, become a part of it. Die to your own kingdom, become part of my kingdom. Not only has he invited us into that, but he says, look, what I'm going to do in the meantime while you're on earth, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you all this stuff. It doesn't even belong to you. I'm going to give you all these things, time, energy, talents, gifts, education, money, possessions, all these things I'm going to give to you. And what I want you to do is I want you to go crazy investing in my kingdom because you love me, because I'm your greatest treasure. You've already gotten everything. And and what I'm going to do is the way you invest here, I'm going to reward you there. I mean, think about a passage like Matthew 19, 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus says, not only will I bless you in this life, but I will bless you 10,000% in the life to come. One dollar invested here will reap a 10,000% reward there. I will reward those who work hard here in investing here. That is an amazing thought. It's an amazing thought to think about the vacation that we give up, the land or the home, the bigger home that we give up to to, to give to missions or whatever we do, that all of these things are laying up for ourselves a treasure that he says that neither moth nor rust will destroy, nor will thieves ever break in to steal away. You see, you cannot lose. Jesus is saying, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Whatever you give up here, you're not even giving up. You're just sending it ahead. You're, You're putting it there where it will grow and it will be reserved for you forever. Not only do you get me the greatest treasure, but I'm going to reward you and bless you and give you more than you ever could imagine. 1 Corinthians 2.9 no, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of men imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. He says, you can't even imagine what I have for you. Just be busy here investing so that you can get there. But understand what Jesus is saying. He says, you can't do that until your heart is there. Until I am your greatest treasure. But once that's the case, then we really begin to invest. We begin to invest in our homes and our families, not for ourselves, but for Christ. We invest in missions and in the church where Jesus says, I'm doing something here. I'm building my church. I'm doing kingdom work here. Invest here. 
Invest your time and your energy and your money and your, all your resources here. And give to the needy, those who don't know me yet, so that they can be in heaven and be a part of my kingdom as well. You see, that's what investing in God's kingdom looks like. It's investing our time, energy, gifts, money, possessions, not for ourselves, not for what we're building, but for what we are a part of and what we're going to enjoy forever. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, if you read history, you find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. C.S. Lewis says, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at the earth and you will get neither. And that's what Jesus is saying here this morning. He's saying, you, you go after your own kingdom, you will lose everything. You'll gain your life for a second, it'll be gone forever. But invest in my kingdom, die to your own kingdom, invest in my kingdom. Put your treasures there and you will experience eternal life and joy that is everlasting. So the question for us is, where are you investing your treasure? Are you still living for your own kingdom? And the most important question of all, is Christ truly your greatest treasure? Is he what you value most? You see, someone who's living for God's kingdom is investing his treasure, the treasure of this life, in God's kingdom because that is where his heart is. There's a second characteristic of someone who's living for God's kingdom, and that's that he is single-mindedly focused on God's kingdom and thus experiencing fullness of life. He's single-minded in his focus on God's kingdom, and because of that, he is even now experiencing fullness of life. Notice what Jesus says, and probably what is the most difficult or confusing part of this section. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus, what are you saying here? What is going on? Jesus, he, he, he's continuing the, the idea of the heart, but now he's translating to another body part. He's, he's, he's likening our eyes as our heart, that which directs our lives, that which fixates on things and focuses its gaze on things. I like what John Stott says. He says, where we fix our eyes and our heart affects our whole life. You see, it affects who we become and the kind of life that we experience. And there's only two kinds of eyes according to Jesus. There's only two kinds of eyes according to Jesus. You either have a good eye or a bad eye. Now, this is amazing what Jesus does with this word. Uh, there's the two Greek words that he's using for good. A lot, your translations might have healthy, good, or clear. Or, and on the other side, they might have bad, evil, wicked, or sick. But here are the two Greek words, hoplos and paneros. Hoplos is a fascinating word we'll get into in a second. Paneros is where we get porn, pornography from, meaning bad, evil, wicked. Um, hoplos means the good eye. Jesus is referring to the eye that is healthy. But that's really not what the base or the, the, the real or kind of the base definition of hoplus is. What it really means, what hoplus really means is single or simple. You see, 
What Jesus is describing is an eye that is single-minded in its devotion to the Lord. It's continually fixed on God. Its, its gaze is set on God, and it's not distracted with anything else. It's totally loyal, single-minded in its devotion to the Lord. As opposed to the eye that is bad, this is an eye that is ultimately divided in its loyalty. It's divided. It's trying to look at two things at the same time, but really can. It's fascinating, again, because when you look at the word hoplos, uh, the, adjective, the adverb form of the, of the Greek word haplotes, when we, like we find it in James chapter 1, it says that God gives generously to those who ask for wisdom. It means that he, he gives without holding back. God's not going to say, I'm just going to give you a little bit, but I have more. No, God says, I'm, I'm going to unleash all, I'm going to give you immense amount of, amounts of wisdom. I'm not going to hold back at all. And, so, and that, that's where we can see the connection between generous and single. You see, when you're single-minded, when you're wholehearted, you're not holding anything back. You're giving the Lord everything. And so when the Lord gives us wisdom, he doesn't hold back. As opposed to the bad eye, the, the divided eye, the double-minded eye, which says... I'll give you a little bit, but I won't give you everything. I won't be totally committed to you. And that's why it's so evil and wicked. Um, cataracts are basically the, uh, the, the, the lens, or behind the lens of just becoming opaque over time um, to where what, what it leads to is myopia or nearsightedness. And if it's not treated, a cataract will ultimately lead to blindness. Understand that Jesus is, in a sense, saying your treasure, living for your kingdom, is like having cataracts in your eyes. You cannot see the glories of God's kingdom because you're so blinded and so fixated on your own treasure and on your own kingdom. And to do that is... It leads to what Jesus is about to say, spiritual darkness. Notice what Paul Tripp says again. He says, God purposed that the borders of our vision would be much, much larger than the boundaries of our lives. We were meant to see more than our physical eyes can see. And it is that greater vision that was meant to engage us, excite us, connect us, and satisfy us. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you look at me, if, you, if, if, if my kingdom... And if I, as the greatest treasure, am your focus, you will experience fullness of life. Your body will be full of light. And notice how he describes two different people. See, if you have a good eye, your body will be full of light. If you have a bad eye, your body will be full of darkness. What are you saying, Jesus? Here's what Jesus is saying. I think the key to understand it is found in John 8:12. Listen to what Jesus says about himself. He says, I am the light of the world. You see, when we're focusing on Christ, when we're focusing on his kingdom... We're, we're, we're gazing at the true light. And Jesus says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is saying that there is life to be lived when we're fixed on him. To be, for the body to be full of light, then in a sense, is to experience the fullness of the life that is only to be found in Christ. So we see these two kinds of people, one full of light, one full of darkness. This, this, this experiencing the fullness of life, we can break it down in a couple areas. Number one, it means that if we're full of light, we're undeceived. We're living in the truth. We're living in the truth. Notice the several scriptures here. So we're not deceived. We're not short-sighted or myopic, and we're not blind, spiritually blind. 
Notice 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. See, for all of us who are living for God's kingdom, who truly know him, we have been brought into the knowledge that is the light of Christ. And we know the truth. We know him. We know what life is really about. It says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, In their case, speaking of the unbeliever, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light. So that unbelievers are totally living in spiritual darkness. Blind. There's another aspect to this fullness of light, this, this experiencing the fullness of life. And that is to be transformed. See, there's something else that happens when we begin to live for God's kingdom, when we focus on Him, when He becomes the one that we're totally committed to in our hearts. You see, we begin to be transformed. Notice again in 2 Corinthians, in verses 3:18 and 4, 4, notice what Paul says. He says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And that glory is the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. You see, it says we're gazing at Christ, as we're gazing at his kingdom, something so glorious, something so great. It has a transforming effect on us. It begins to change us and transform us into that glory. And there's a third aspect to this being full of light concept that Jesus is communicating, and that's to be useful to God. See, when you're full of light, you begin to radiate. You begin to emanate light. In Matthew 5.16, Jesus said, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, the guy who's living for his own kingdom, for his own treasures, for his own empire, he has no light that he's exuding. And he's just like the rest of the world that's in darkness. But for those of us who are living in God's kingdom, focused on that, focused on him, we begin to shine in a world that does not know Christ. And as they see us doing the good works of living for his kingdom... They can glorify God who is in heaven. You see, what Jesus is saying is, you will be useful to me, you will be useful to me when you're full of light. When your eye is fixed on me, when you're wholeheartedly, single-mindedly focused on me, you will be useful to me. As opposed to being useless to God and what he's doing in this world. You see then, to be full of light is to experience the fullness of life what is known as eternal life. Not just eternal in time span, but eternal in fullness of life. And the one who's living for his own kingdom, Jesus says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. You are experiencing the limits of your own self, your own walls, your own tiny little kingdom box filled with your own little treasures. And it leads to despair, to depression, and ultimately to darkness. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, there, notice how he ends this section. He says, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? For anybody who thinks that living for their own kingdom will bring happiness, joy, fulfillment, purpose, a reason to live, Jesus is saying this, if that is the light that's coming into your eye and into your body, if that's all that you've got, you are living in total darkness. And how great is that darkness? To live for our own kingdoms then is spiritual suicide. It is to give up all that we could have in Christ and in his kingdom to, to, and, and to, to live this life where we're, we're really not living life at all the way we were intended to live. 
There's a third and final characteristic of someone who's living for God's kingdom. That is that he is serving God, his master, exclusively with love and devotion. He's serving God, his master, exclusively with love and devotion. Not only is he investing in the treasures of this life in, the king, in God's kingdom, because that's where his heart is, and not only is he single-mindedly focused on God's kingdom so that he's experiencing fullness of life, but he is serving God, his master, exclusively with love and devotion. Notice the text. It says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And Jesus begins by just totally blowing away the lie that all, many of us, or all of us at one time or another have believed, and that is that we can be the king of our own kingdom. That's the lie that was sold to Adam and Eve. That's the lie that we've inherited. We believe that, often we believe that the treasures that we're amassing, the kingdom that we're building, the empire that we're you know, involved in obsessing over, that, that we're really the king of that. And Je- Jesus is saying, no, you don't understand. There's no, there's no ruling here for you anywhere in the sense that you were meant to serve. You were never meant to be the king. You were meant to serve. And it's really only a question of who you're serving. See, you're not ruling. You're serving. You're either a slave to me, the greatest master, or you're a slave to something else. But you are a slave. You are a servant. And if we're living for our own kingdom, thinking we're in charge of this kingdom, we're the king of this baby, we're at the center of the universe here, Jesus is saying, you're wrong. You're wrong. You are enslaved to that, the very thing that you think is serving you. Jesus goes on to describe what a servant who's really living for his kingdom will look like. Notice what he says. He says, he will hate the one or love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. There's two qualities here of the servant of God who's living for his kingdom. The first is that he will love his master. He'll love his master. And the word is agape, you know, to love. Now, if you want a quick definition of what agape love is, this is it. It's strong feelings that drive intense actions. It's strong feelings that drive intense actions. For anybody who says agape love is just action without feelings, they're full of baloney. They're just as bad as the people who say it's all feelings and, and no action. Notice one pal, I'll just take you to one passage, and that's 1 John 4.10. Listen to this. In this is love. You want to know what love is? Here it is. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Notice what He did. He loved us and then He sent His Son. You see, from eternity past, Jesus, God, the Father, Holy Spirit, they have been loving us with a love that we don't even understand. Intense feelings of love for us. And that love ultimately resulted in amazing action, intense actions, in the sending of Jesus, who would be the propitiation for our sins. And so if we're to understand that love, let's, let's, let's understand that. It's strong feelings driving intense actions. And it's no different for us. First John 4.19 goes on to say, we love him because he first loved us. You see, if we're to love our master, it's because he first loved us. He showed us the way. And that's what loving him as a servant of God, that, that's what it looks like. It's having intense, passionate feelings for God, for all that he's done for us, for who he is, just blown away by him, in love with him, and then responding with intense actions for him. Jesus says, you, you can't serve two. You're either going to love one and hate the other, or hate the other. You, you, you can't love both. 
interesting when we think about the word hate. Um, I like what Rebecca Manley Pippert says in her, her book, Hope Has Its Reasons. She says this. She says, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. The final form of hate is indifference. You see, when an unbeliever looks at God and says, how can, lo- God be, how, can, how can a loving God send people to hell? Well, it's because God is a loving God that he sends, that he has anger. If God didn't have anger over people who were raped and, and beaten and killed and tortured and murdered and were robbed, then he wouldn't be loving. It's that anger that is fueled by his love. So anger isn't the opposite of love. What is, is hatred. And you want to know what the final form of hatred is? It's indifference. It's a cold ignoring of God. You see, this is very sobering, very convicting to us because often we can go through a whole day, a whole week, a whole month, and God isn't, isn't, isn't even on our radar. He's just, he's just there. And we're just giving him just the, the stiff arm of indifference. Well, we don't even acknowledge him. You see, you can only love one thing, one master. And if you love Jesus, then you will not be indifferent to him. You will be intensely passionate in your feelings towards him and in your actions toward him. Well, there's a second description of the servant. He is devoted to his master. Not only does he love his master, but he's devoted to his master. And that word, the Greek word for devoted, means to cling to, to hold fast to. It means the idea of commitment or loyalty. And it's, it's the opposite of what Jesus says here, to look down upon, to disregard. You see, the servant who really is treasuring Christ, who has God as his master and is serving him, will be totally devoted to him. He'll be clinging fast to Jesus, clinging fast to his God, not disregarding him, not ignoring him. You know, when I was a bachelor... I, I, I was at a Bible study where I met, ultimately met Jen and there was a couple other girls there. I could be devoted in my attention to several of them. And I was a little bit to kind of find out which one might be the one. But when I finally married my wife and chose her, I set my devotion on her. I set my love on her. I no longer was devoted to anyone else and I actually looked down on everyone else. The, the, the Greek word, therefore, to despise is to see them as of little value. You see, when Christ is our greatest treasure... When he's our master, when we're devoted to him, he is the most valuable one and everything else pales in comparison. And that's what the servant of God who's living for his kingdom looks like according to Jesus here. Either you're loving and devoted to something else or you're loving and devoting, devoting yourself to God. Jesus ends the verse, the statement with this. He says, you cannot serve God and money or mammon. He's saying, not only is it spiritual suicide, not only will you lose the experience of fullness of life, but it is an impossibility. Ultimately, you have to choose. A lot of times we think of the idea of a slave in terms of an employer and the idea that we can be, we can work, be working two jobs. We can be devoted to two things. But when you're a slave to a master, you give him everything. He demands total loyalty, total commitment, total faithfulness. And Jesus, with this statement, is saying, you need to make a choice. Who will you serve? Will you serve your kingdom? Will you busy yourself and be all about your treasure? Or will you die to your kingdom in order that you might become part of something way bigger 
and, and serve the Lord. Joshua calls us to that same decision. He says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You see, in that moment, he was making the decision to be totally devoted to, to, to God. See, the most important part of living for God's kingdom is living for the king. Jesus is the king. You know, I want to close just by thinking for just a moment about the story of the rich young ruler. Um, because here's this whole idea illustrated in a story for us, a very sad story. A man comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I love what Mark's version of it is. He says, because he, he includes that, he loved him. Look, he says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. There's still one thing that you haven't done. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Understand what's going on here. Jesus isn't saying, you just have one more thing to earn your way into my kingdom. No, he's not saying that. He's not saying if you go and sell everything you have, you'll have earned it, you'll get in. No, Jesus, Jesus, he gave him the benefit now that he had kept all these other things, but he, he went, he knew the man's heart and he knew this was his ultimate problem. He could not give up his own treasures and his own kingdom to become part of Christ. And you cannot go to heaven, you cannot have a relation with God unless you're willing to give up that kingdom to be joined into God's kingdom. And that's what this man ultimately could not do. He, it says he was disheartened by the saying. He went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. You see, he had a kingdom that he was building. He had treasure that he had been investing into himself and for himself. He had all this that he said, I cannot give this up to come. And look what Jesus is offering. He's saying, just give all that away and you'll have treasure. And come and follow me. Make me the greatest treasure of your life. But that man ultimately could not do what Jesus is asking us to do today. He said, it's better for me to hold on to my own kingdom. And he made a life-altering, eternal, eternally devastating decision. If we're going to live for God's kingdom, we want to be investing the treasures of this life in his kingdom because that's where our heart is. We want to be single-minded in our focus, gazing at God, His glorious kingdom, single-minded in our devotion to Him so that we can experience the fullness of life. And we want ultimately to see Him as our master. And we want to be serving Him exclusively with love and devotion. That's our goal. That's what Christ is calling us to. And next week we'll look at what Jesus says about those who have chosen to do that. Because what ends up happening is we become very anxious. Lord, okay, now that I've chosen to do that, what, what about the things I do need? We'll get there. But Jesus is calling us today to say, what kingdom are you living for? And are you willing to give up your own kingdom, all of your treasures, to have me as your greatest treasure and to invest in my kingdom, become a part of my kingdom, what I'm doing and what I'm all about? Let's pray. Father, um, these are sobering, powerful words from our Savior.
And apart from your grace, apart from Jesus having made the way for us, this, these words would be utterly devastating and utterly unattainable. But Lord, we are in Christ for those of us who know him, who have put our faith in him. Jesus says, I've done all the hard work. I've gotten you to heaven. I've secured your salvation. Now just busy yourself being part of my kingdom. Keep your heart there. Make me the treasure that I am, the great treasure that I am. Lord, help us to do this. We thank you that Christ was the ultimate rich young ruler who gave up all that he had in heaven to come. And he lived on this earth faithful, investing in, your, in his Father's kingdom, gazing at his Father, continually devoted to him, seeing the Father as his master every moment of his life. Lord, help us to be like Christ and help us to find grace and strength to follow in his footsteps and to live for your kingdom, Lord. We pray your blessing on us as we go forward. Convict us of these truths. Make them a reality in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.